This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, a look at the emerging field of collective psychology and the interconnection between the many crises we face in our politics, our economies, and our climate at the global level, and the epidemic of depression, anxiety, and addiction at the individual level. Alex Evans is the creator of the Collective Psychology Project, and he believes that the fate of our democracy depends on an emotionally healthy citizenry that can empathize and share a common vision of purpose with each other, even across the political divide. But his vision is certainly not about capitulation. I am not for a second suggesting that we dilute our values or aim to kind of split the difference on the policy issues that we care most about. I mean, when you have like kids being detained at the border in the way that we're seeing in the United States, when you look at you know issues like climate, the one I work on most, I'm absolutely not suggesting we just sort of meet each other halfway. That is all ahead, so stay with us. So before we get started, I will just mention that I am in Europe right now, you guys. I flew over for my cousin's wedding, and I'm going to be staying until next week because, you know, come all this way, you might as well stay and enjoy. So I am, and uh, I'm actually recording this from a hotel room in Prague. I just want to note that, let's just say I'm torn about not being home right now. I can't really decide if this is the exact right time or the exact wrong time to be away from the U.S., but I will tell you that coverage of impeachment over here, at least in the Czech Republic where I am, is minimal almost to the point of being non-existent. And, you know, that could be because, as we know, the Czech Republic has a very long and painful history with authoritarianism. So, What is happening with us and Trump may not be registering. This isn't to say that people aren't talking about it. They are. But I kind of get the feeling that in general, Europeans are looking to us to, and by us, I mean citizens, to clean up our mess. So, hey, message received there. Uh, And so given everything that's happening on the impeachment front, I thought very seriously about abandoning the show that I had slotted for this week in favor of running one of my past interviews on impeachment. But you know, look, I, I respect your intelligence. You have probably listened to those shows already. And you know, even if you haven't, you know the reasons Congress should step up and do its constitutional duty. And then also the thing that Trump is going to get impeached for, and yes, I absolutely believe that it is not an if but a when, um, that thing is not something that any of my past guests saw coming uh, other than talking about, you know, Trump's corruption generally. Uh, so I don't think that it would add any context or understanding of what we're dealing with right now. Uh, But beyond that, you know, I think you'll find this interview that I did with Alex Evans pretty interesting. I will note that I did this a number of weeks back, and so we don't get into the impeachment issue. But he does have a great deal to say about where we are right now as a global social community and about how it's almost impossible to tease out and separate the individual from the collective when it comes to making things better for ourselves. So check it out. On with the show. It is not news that we are living in a time of increased tribalism and extreme polarization, but there may be a new way of looking at the problem in a holistic way that may not only lower the temperature between factions, but might also be the key to effectively addressing some of the most pressing political and global issues facing us today. My guest, Alex Evans, refers to this approach as collective psychology. He is the founder of the Collective Psychology Project, and he has recently published a report about it. He joins us now from the UK via Skype. Hello, Alex. 
Hi, great to be with you. So, you know, we know what the problems are here because we're presented with this every day. Uh, growing inequality, irreversible climate change, authoritarianism, tribalism. Uh, there's a humanitarian crisis on the U.S. southern border, on and on. And you say in your paper that the crises happening in our world are actually reflective of an inner crisis that many of us are going through. And then, in fact, the two inform and feed on one another. So let's start there. What do you mean by that? So obviously we all get that there's a mounting pile of crises out there in the world. And you just referred to a lot of them, inequality, climate change, mass extinction, extreme poverty, and so on. And we usually think of that as separate from this whole other pile of crises, which include things like depression, anxiety, spiking rates of suicide and self-harm, especially among young people. This kind of epidemic of, of mental health issues that's afflicting us at the moment. And one of the core arguments in the report is that these are actually not two different sets of crises. It makes much more sense to see them as two sides of the same coin, and in particular to understand the feedback loops about how those outer crises amplify our inner sense of unease and anxiety, and how that in turn then plays out politically so that threat perception kind of shapes our politics and polarizes us even more than we already are. Well, so give me an example of that. Sure. So, um, for example, 20 years ago, if you were depressed and you went to see your doctor about it, they would have just said, this is simple. You have an imbalance in your brain chemistry. I'm going to prescribe you some Prozac to redress that balance. Whereas nowadays, psycho psychologists understand much better that actually the way we live now is instrumental in shaping our mental well-being or lack of it. And if we lack autonomy, if we don't feel like we belong, um, if we don't feel like we have opportunities for self-expression, etc. There are certain basic psychological needs that modern life is often not great at meeting. Now, to, so that's an example of how the state of the world can mess up our state of mind. And for an example of the converse, I think the whole story of Cambridge Analytica is fascinating because what you have there is a company that was able to use a mixture of um, technological micro-targeting through social media with a very high degree of psychological um, incision to basically push our buttons with a very high level of precision yeah. to trigger enough of us to see the world in them and us terms just at the moment when it really counts during an election campaign and thereby affect the outcome of that election. And that's an example of how our states of mind, if we're not able to kind of manage our mental and emotional states, can play out politically and end up affecting the state of the world outside. So it's basically that, you know, the inner world in our minds and the outer world out there are very, very much connected. Right. So basically, uh, Cambridge Analytica, Russian troll farms, they were able to exploit our anxieties enough to tip both the Brexit vote and the 2016 election for Trump. And that, in turn, for a lot of people, has led to, to more anxiety and so forth. And on it goes. Um, you say that the seeds of this sinking came from a recent visit to Jerusalem and you said something very interesting, that uh, polarization in Israel and Palestine is coming to be understood better as a mental health issue. How so? So obviously, this is one of the most polarized contexts in the world, um, with Israelis increasingly blaming Palestinians for absolutely everything and vice versa. And what I found from uh, when I was there, talking to psychologists like Gina Ross, who's a fascinating trauma psychologist who um, is Israeli but grew up in Syria, so has very high fluency, if you like, in both sides. Her observation was that you can't understand that polarization without understanding the endemic nature of what's called continuous traumatic stress in that part of the world. And that's like post-traumatic stress disorder when it's not post, 
but it's an everyday ongoing reality. And you can see why. I mean, Israelis live in constant low-level fear of maybe getting stabbed on the tram or of a rocket attack or even of invasion. And Palestinians, meanwhile, live in constant low-level fear of arbitrary arrest, of their house being next to be demolished, or of just living under more or less total surveillance. And so what you have is a situation where everyone has some degree of threat perception all the time. And the symptoms that you would expect that to produce are just the ones we see. It's hypervigilance, it's anxiety, it's irritability, and especially this propensity towards othering, towards blaming everything on some kind of, you know, archetypal other on the other side of the political divide. And of course, when enough people are feeling like this, it becomes something that really frames the whole tenor of politics. And when I was there, I'd just been working on Brexit in the UK for a year, and it reminded me of that. And I'm not saying that you know, people in the UK are traumatized in the same way as people who live in a situation of violent conflict are. But when you look at polling data about Brexit, or when you look at polling data around the time of Trump's election in the US, you find very clear indicators of threat perception, of anxiety, of this stuff playing out. And in fact, you mention in your paper that one of the strongest predictors of voting for Trump was agreement with this statement, the American way of life is threatened. Right, that's exactly right. And I think one of the most fascinating writers out there on this is an Australian professor called Karen Stenner, who as far ago as uh, 2005, came up with this idea of what she called normative threat. And it's basically the idea that a certain subset of populations have this psychological predisposition towards authoritarianism, which can stay hidden for a long, long time until the right conditions arise, when it suddenly gets activated. And she argues that what those conditions are, are especially uh, a sense of the moral order being threatened, a sense that we don't have consensus about values anymore, coupled with a sense that the government is no longer legitimate. And when those things happen, i.e. exactly like our political situation, now for a lot of those people, they sort of fear like values are in flux, we don't all believe the same thing anymore. It triggers them into this kind of authoritarianism and a very strong desire for order. And that really is a sticking point for a lot of us on the left. So you write that, quote, democracy depends on citizens who can manage their mental and emotional states, feel empathy for one another, and share a sense of common identity and purpose. So we can get into the, the how in a second, and I very much want to, but the question that I hear coming from my progressive activist listener uh, base is why? Why should we try to feel empathy and common identity with Trump supporters, or in your instance, with, with Leave supporters in the UK? Right. I mean, I think the answer is very simple. Um, it's because if it proves that this works better in achieving our objectives, then we should do it. And it's, ex it's very analogous to the way that you look at people in the 60s uh, and 50s, for that matter, civil rights struggle in the United States. Like Dr. Martin Luther King's own journey was one from embracing nonviolence because he was a pacifist through to embracing it because it was just a good political strategy and it achieved the desired objective. And I think this is very much the same. If we think we can win the objectives we seek through like calling out our opponents, through just firing up our base, saddling up for a culture war, making sure we win it, then great. But when you look at the results around us, it doesn't look to me as if that strategy is winning. And when you look at issues on the scale of and the complexity of stuff like climate change or a mass extinction event, I don't think these are going to be solved by the left winning against the right and just grinding them underfoot. These issues are way too big to be solved with anything less than like a large 
consensus across society being brought into a solution. And in order to achieve that, we need to be building bridges as much as we're firing up our base. That is a tricky thing, um, because the work sure. that you're uh, talking about is likely going to need to be reciprocal from the Trump side, from the Leave side. Um, and this doesn't work if only one side takes part. So how do we get the other side on board with this? So I think this is where, I mean, let me be clear about one thing up front. I am not for a second suggesting that we dilute our values or aim to kind of split the difference on the policy issues that we care most about. I mean, when you have like kids being detained at the border in the way that we're seeing in the United States, when you look at you know issues like climate, the one I work on most, I'm absolutely not suggesting we just sort of meet each other halfway. I think this is about how we conduct political debates rather than what it is that we're demanding. And I think a fascinating case study is the way that um, activists pushing for equal marriage in the United States uh, adopted these strategies of deep canvassing, of really reaching out to people on the other side of the divide, of listening. So they would begin those encounters on the doorstep with really listening attentively, rather than immediately throwing arguments at their opponents about why they were wrong. And one of their political strategies was that they would seek out um, experiences of shame so that they could start from empathy and then work out from there. And of course, you know, this was just one part of the political strategy that led to equal marriage. But it is astonishing how quickly cultural values tipped. And that was not because we won a culture war against them. We did achieve our objectives, but we did it by being inclusive, by appealing to a larger us rather than a them and us. So I think there's something really important there for us to learn from. I would agree. And, you know, what you're talking about uh, happened incrementally. It uh, incorporated elements of storytelling, which you uh, have certainly talked about in your research. And I want to get into that in just a moment. But let's unpack what you call a series of transitions in terms of how we get there. So there are three of what you call transitions that we need to make as a society. So the first is from fight or flight to self-awareness. Unpack this for us. How does this work? Right. So fight or flight is basically just that. That's the same observation we've already touched on, that a lot sure. of people are coming from a place of threat, perception and fear. Now, what I mean by self-awareness is basically having the resources so that you can choose how to react to events rather than have the kind of threat perception part of your brain choose how to react for you. So you instinctively go into that defensive crouch. And that is really hard to do. I mean, if you look at yeah. there's a fascinating thing that just happened in uh, Istanbul where um, the mayoral elections, you probably saw that back in March, um, the kind of secular CHP party narrowly won against Erdogan's much more authoritarian AKP party. Erdogan used his influence over the courts to have that election annulled, and then there was a rerun. Now, a lot of the CHP supporters were, were just feeling this is a disgrace, which was true. Let's let's absolutely saddle up for battle and take these guys on. And the guy who was the ousted mayor of Istanbul, who'd been mayor for about 10 minutes, said, no, we're not going to do that. That's exactly the playbook they would like us to go for, because when we polarize like that, they win. Instead, what we're going to do is reach out and we're going to um, embrace our opponents. We're going to love them. And it turns out he meant this very literally. He went and spent a lot of time hugging people on the campaign trail, including his opponents. They very deliberately resisted the urge to just play to CHP's secular base. Spent a lot of time in mosques reassuring AKP supporters. We don't see you as the enemy. 
And they wrote this fascinating playbook. It's available in English called Radical Love, all about how to pursue this strategy. And one of the things it really emphasizes, this is really hard to do. It takes tremendous self-mastery, tremendous patience and discipline to be able to resist the urge to lash out, to just get fired up when someone's in your face yelling, to de-escalate and to build those bridges. But they were clearly able to do it because um, they won a landslide when that rerun election took place just a couple of weeks ago. And I think what fascinates me is that this radical love strategy uh, is one of the first things we've seen that's proved devastatingly effective against the kind of authoritarian populism that we're up against in place after place after place all over the world. Yeah, because authoritarian regimes tend to thrive on being able to get people to feel separate from one another. And that gets back to the whole paradigm about uh, anxiety and depression. And so if you can minimize that by uh, bringing together a sense of, you know, collective love um yeah it's a it's a very very heavy lift but it sounds like from what you've seen and certainly the example that you gave in turkey is very very uh it can be very effective um the next transition that you talk about is from powerlessness to agency and you say here that a lot of people feel very powerless right now and that can make them uh, more susceptible to authoritarianism talk about how so i think it's I think what you said is exactly right. And I, what fascinates me is how it plays out on multiple levels. People feel powerless in their own lives. Uh, they often feel powerless in their communities. Like where I live in the UK, many, many communities are seeing like their post offices shut down, their libraries getting shut down, their kind of central shopping district is just being hollowed out. And people feel powerless about that. And then, of course, people feel powerless about the big national issues like Brexit here in the UK, or above all, the international issues like climate change. So. As you say, when people feel powerless, they are ripe for the picking by authoritarians and extremists. So it really matters that people feel agency, both in their own lives and collectively. And, and how do you do that? So I think there's all sorts of great trainings that you can do. I mean, you know, I, I was just today with a, a fantastic community organizer here in the UK who works with communities in very, very deprived parts of Britain that are exactly the sort of places which voted very strongly to leave the European Union, exactly the places where English nationalist groups are kind of recruiting people. And what she and her colleagues are finding is that, you know, progressives are in a race against the extremists to work with these people and organize them. Because once they're organized um, and they feel a sense of agency and also of belonging, which we're going to come on to in a moment, then they feel empowered and that change, you know, that's a psychological need for them, but they can get that either from us as progressives or they can get it from the extremists. I mean, both of us in different ways are offering people experiences of agency and belonging. But just to come back to what you were saying a moment ago about self-awareness, as you said, the bar is so much higher for us as progressives. The populists only need to like trigger people into fear to seeing the world in them and us terms and they win. For us, the bar is way higher. For us to achieve the objectives that we're working towards, we need people to see themselves as part of a larger us that refuses to other people, uh, even when we're debating fiercely with them. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we face an uphill battle because the bar is higher for us, but we've still got to do it. 
Agreed. And so the third transition that you talk about is the need to transition from disconnection to belonging. You've touched on this already a little bit. You say that people need to feel a part of a larger us and not an us versus them. And there is a little bit of, uh, and I, I guess for want of a better term, an arms race between progressives and some of the authoritarian leaning groups. Um, what would that look like most effectively to bring uh, a more generalized understanding, an us versus them, what would that look like in your mind? How would it play out? Well, I think the first thing to say, as we just touched on, is that you can absolutely feel a sense of belonging in an us versus them framing. I mean, that plays so well to this tribal part of our psychology. And you can totally feel like you belong when you're in the fight of your life against some, you know, archetypal enemy. So th- the risk is that people look for that sense of belonging in bad places, right. like racist groups or white supremacists or other kinds of extremism. Um, So it's essential for us that, you know, they get that sense of belonging in a way that isn't them and us. But I think in in terms of what that looks like in practice, clearly the epidemic of loneliness that's all around us is, you know, the place to start. So many people feel that sense of loneliness, uh, like they really don't have anyone that they can talk to in their lives. And every time we see a story about a kind of extremist who's, you know, been involved in an active shooter event, you know, one of these awful stories which come along with such depressing regularity. You just, you know in advance, they're going to be lonely people who lack connection yeah. in their lives. So that stuff matters. But then I think, I, you know, like all of these transitions, it has a collective aspect. It's not just about individual loneliness. It's also about what happens when you have maybe entire communities wondering, like, do we belong? Are we welcome here? Are we valued as part of the larger community? So it's not just about individuals. It's also about disconnection at that larger scale. Um, And, you know, again, there's an awful lot that we can do on all three of these transitions. There's so much we can do if we're serious about it, if we recognize this stuff is crucial for building 21st century citizens. Um, But we're not doing it. We've been underinvesting in it for years. And that's why we're so vulnerable to people like Cambridge Analytica. Well, let's talk about some of the actions that you prescribe. Uh, One of the first is uh, what we've already touched on, but I would love for you to dig a little bit deeper. So building community, but then also telling the story. So talk a little bit more uh, specifically about how storytelling can fit into into this work. Sure. Well, this is an area I really started thinking about um, three or four years ago. I'd spent a long time working as a policy wonk, and my idea of how to change the world was basically you get evidence in front of policymakers and then stuff happens. And it took me a long time to realize the world doesn't actually work like that. But particularly when I watched Trump triumph, when I watched the Brexit campaign triumph in the UK, I realized these guys didn't win because of the quality of their evidence base. They won because they were fantastic storytellers telling these, you know, very resonant if also very dark narratives about how we are threatened by some other and we need to build walls to keep them out and take back control, all of this kind of stuff. And it made me reflect a lot that, you know, there was a time when humans, when we like had much, you know, much richer, deeper shared stories. Some of them were religious, some of them were about heroes and quests, but these were all deep shared narratives that explain like where we are, how we got here, where we might be trying to go, who we really are so that you know we're talking about myths here but basically you know those we've lost a lot of those shared narratives those deep shared myths partly as we've become less religious partly as we've just become very literal minded and we think things are literally scientifically true or not true at all 
And I think that's provided a brilliant environment for these demagogues like Trump and like Nigel Farage here in the UK or Marina Le Pen in France. And so it really matters that we start reseeding and repropagating the right kinds of stories, the kinds that bring us together. How in your mind do we do that? Give, give an example, if you could, of how uh, the left has built a better story. Well, I think one fascinating example um, has to do with the birth of the modern environmental movement. Um, you probably know the story of how Stuart Brand, the great environmental thinker, um, started a campaign in 1968 to say, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole Earth yet? And actually just, you know, I think it was about a year later, the first images of Earth from space, of the whole of the Earth from space, did come back from the Apollo 8 mission. And it had this extraordinary effect. It was like a story encapsulated in an image that really helped to catalyze a global consciousness. And I don't think it's any coincidence that two years later, it was the first Earth Day and the modern environmental movement really grows from that. There's another more recent example that I love of how um, the United Nations, when it was doing the General Assembly a couple of years ago, set up a little virtual reality booth in the lobby of the General Assembly building so that these kind of cynical, hard-bitten diplomats as they showed up to work ready to just like read out their talking points at each other, had the opportunity to put on a VR headset and be transported to a refugee camp just over the border from Syria and spend time with a family who'd had to flee their homes, who'd you know, had to endure appalling privations. And the woman who was in charge of this little booth um, supplying these VR headsets told the New York Times that it wasn't at all unusual to get the headsets back wet with tears. And I just thought, you know, that, that's extraordinary that these, you know, as I say, these hard bitten diplomats would have an experience with such emotional depth. But I think that, you know, when I'm talking about stories, I'm not just talking about the kind you read in a book. Um, there's clearly a huge appetite out there for mythical kind of narratives. Look at the kind of films and novels that are topping sales, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Star Wars or, or whatever. There's a deep, very human yearning for this stuff. And with all of these new technologies that are about to come online, like VR being how we interact with the web, we're about to have this avalanche of storytelling superpowers. But the bit that bothers me is like any new technology, it's going to be available to everyone for good and for ill. So we as progressives may use that set of technologies to build the kind of narratives that will unite us, stories about a larger us, about a longer now, about a different good life where you know what we value isn't just GDP growth. But the people who want to polarize us, who want us to think of the world in them and us terms, they will also have access to these technologies. So we're in a kind of storytelling arms race. Well, we happen to talk to a lot of uh, tech people here who are based in Washington state. And right. so this might be a call to action to them. So uh, the other two uh, areas of action are mapping the ground. So that is essentially taking stock of groups and organizations that are already embodying what you're talking about. And then the last action is making what you call small bets. So this is sort of the experimental phase. How do you envision this unfolding? Right. Well, I mean, I think it's, it really just starts with the thought that we don't know how to do most of this stuff yet. I certainly don't know what kinds of you know mechanisms and what kinds of groups and what kind of learnings are going to be the transmission vectors that work, that can take this stuff to scale and seed the, the systems we need to build our collective capacity to manage our mental and emotional states, to feel agency. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is filling the gap that the retreat of religion from public life and increasingly from many of our own lives has left behind. I mean, I'm not saying everyone should go back to church, but a lot of what we're talking about 
you know, tools for self-awareness, agency, belonging, deep stories. This is the stuff that traditionally religions have done. And now that religion plays less of a part in so many people's lives, we sort of have to recreate new structures that play the same role. And we don't know what's going to work. We don't know what's going to go to scale. What are some of the things that are being tried? So I think I'm fascinated by small groups um, that can self-seed and go to scale. There's a great example in the United States called The Dinner Party. This started in Los Angeles of a group of 20 and 30-something who'd had an experience of losing someone close to them. And, you know, people would often find that they didn't really have places where they could talk about this. You don't want to talk about it at you know, dinner with your friends or at a party. People just, you know, you worry you're being a downer. And so the, the founders of this thing thought, let's create a dinner where all of us have lost someone and we're going to talk about that and it's totally fine. And it just went massively viral. It's now in like, you know, I think more than 200 cities across the United States and it's going international. And that's a fascinating example of a brilliant idea, a really well-designed process, if you like, that's then just set free into the world and takes itself to scale. This organization doesn't have a huge staff, just in the same way that Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't have a huge headquarters. It has a brilliant process that self-seeds and takes itself to scale. So I think asking, well, what might that look like for helping us build collective psychological well-being is a fascinating question. But, you know, I don't know if that's going to work. So instead of making a huge multi-million dollar bet on it, let's make a small minimum viable product bet on it and learn quickly and fail quickly and make sure we can sort of, you know, just iterate rapidly and find what works. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the Green Revolution, the thing that managed to keep global food production uh, at pace as the population went from 3 billion to 7 billion, it was all about small bets. It was a venture capital mentality. Take risks, fail, learn quickly. That's what we need to do here with all of this collective psychological stuff. And that also takes us back to that incremental approach that you talked about around the issue of uh, marriage equality here in the United States until it, at, at a certain point it hit a tipping point. And then you saw the inversion of the, uh, the approval versus uh, disapproval. And so that's you know right. ultimately how quickly these things can happen. And I think that's that's right, because what we're talking about, it starts incremental with lots of small bets, but it doesn't stay incremental. It rapidly shifts into a much more transformational game. And you will know, I'm sure, of Erica Chenoweth's research that for a new norm to really propagate in a society, the number of people who need to adopt it is pretty small. I she think it's 3.5%. 3. 3. Yeah, 3.5%. There, yeah. there are other estimates that go up to around 10%, but either way, we're not talking about a majority. We're not saying that to get new norms to take root, you have to get to 50%. It's much smaller. And then, as you say, you start to approach tipping points. So I think that's what we're playing for, above all, you know, with this core idea of seeing ourselves as part of a larger us. Because if we're going to navigate this century ahead of us successfully, we have to have enough of us seeing ourselves as part of an us that includes all 7 billion, well, 8 billion now, of the world's humans and other species and all the kids that haven't been born yet. It has to be an us that big. And that is, you know, in many ways, the kind of culmination of this extraordinary story arc that's been running all the way through human history of how we've kept imagining ourselves and seeing as our, ourselves as part of these progressively larger and more complex collectives. I mean, 2000 years ago, as I look out of my window here in North Yorkshire in England, this area was full of kind of small little like Neolithic roving survival bands. And us for those people would have been like, you know, 25 people maximum. But then you fast forward like, you know, a thousand years or so, and people are living in settled villages and us has, you know, increased a lot in size. Fast forward a bit more, you're into kingdoms. 
uh, and then into kind of modern nation states, all the way up to today's global diaspora. That size of the us that we identify with keeps getting bigger. And now here we are right on the verge of enough of us seeing ourselves as part of a global us. And this is basically the test that is going to determine, do we manage to solve climate change? Do we manage to stop mass extinction and start restoring ecosystems? It's all up here in our heads to do with what is the size of the collective we identify with. And there are a lot of ifs there. And you conclude your paper yeah, by saying sure. that we we are teetering between breakdown and breakthrough. Uh, I always like to end my segments on an optimistic note. And I, I have a, a sense where you're going to go with this. But which do you think we're closer to right now? I think it hangs very, very finely in the balance. Um, I mean, I have a huge amount of faith in a breakthrough scenario because, like you, I'm... I mean, I think maybe it's not exactly optimism. I think like having faith is like, you know, you're not um, just assuming it'll be okay. You're going to do absolutely everything in your power to try and bring that about. And that's clearly what a lot of us in progressive politics feel like. Um, It could go really badly wrong. But um, I tend to think that, you know, whether you're religious or whether you're a game theorist, the dice are kind of loaded in our favor at some level. At some level, um, I think it's Robert Wright who puts it, at some level, the universe is kind of for us rather than against us. So I think that, you know, the quality of the intention with which we approach this matters enormously. Um, But, you know, humans are pretty good when their backs are up against the wall at somehow finding their way to extraordinarily rapid non-linear shifts. And history is full of examples of how periods of immense crisis and turbulence have proved tremendously fertile ground for solidarity and renewal and coming up with the new deep stories that can help us to navigate this. So I have a hunch and a hope that we're going to do that again, but I also think we're in for a pretty bumpy ride. Alex Evans is the founder of the Collective Psychology Project. You can find links to his paper, A Larger Us, along with everything else that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. Alex Evans, it has been such a pleasure, man. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's been great to talk to you. And before we go, I do want to mention something important. So most of you listening will be familiar with State Representative Matt Shea. He is a Republican from Spokane Valley who has been very closely associated with white nationalist groups. He personally wrote a manifesto entitled A Biblical Basis for War that detailed a battle between so-called Christian patriots and Muslims, Marxists, members of the LGBTQ community, and others. He also took part in online discussions where he talked about carrying out surveillance and even attacks against activists on the left. As a result of all this, there have been very vocal and numerous calls for the state GOP to remove Matt Shea from the House, and thus far they have not. So the Washington State Democrats have launched a website called CancelMattShea.com that allows you to directly tweet all of Shea's corporate donors, companies like Walmart, Weyerhaeuser, Premira, and others, to relay the message that if you are supporting Shea, you are supporting white nationalism. The site also thanks the growing number of organizations that have already divested, so you can thank them for doing the right thing. I will have a link for you to check out at indivisiblepodcast.org, and I encourage you to hop on, send some tweets. It should go without saying that white supremacy has no place in our state government. 
And that'll do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you'd like to catch up on past shows, if you would like the links to the things that we've talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there as well. If you want to get in touch, the email address for the show, as always, is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte. Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Alex Evans. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.